really appreciated what's been shared so far. Uh, enjoyed the Sunday school. I want to start off with a verse from Ephesians chapter 5. Um, this is a chapter that challenges us to be imitators of Christ, uh, to walk in love, to walk as children of light. And then we get to verses 15 and 16 that go like this. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. It's kind of appropriate, and days are evil. Well, the phrase redeeming the time, NIV says, making the most of every opportunity. I want to talk about opportunities this morning. Have you ever had that, that feeling uh, when the phone rings and you look down and you, you see the, sco- the caller ID and you wonder, why is this person calling me? And maybe you get a little bit of a sinking feeling. You answer the phone and after you get past uh, the weather and, and how are you doing, uh, he asks the question, you know, I was wondering if it would suit you to do whatever, just kind of insert there whatever you least like doing. For me, it might be song leading. And then at that point, you know, if, if it's me, probably my brain is, is going into this kind of excuse hunt, looking for options to get, to get out of this, if possible, and uh, try to find something plausible way to avoid this opportunity. You know, some opportunities are fun and exciting, but other ones are are not so much that way. And, and if you're like me, some of the opportunities that, that God sends your way, uh, you wish he would just send a little bit farther, maybe. Because they're, either because they're labor-intensive or uh, they're, they're scary or they just don't look very rewarding for whatever reason. Some of them don't even look like opportunities. They, they look just like hardships. And we get to choose. The opportunity is how we, get, how we respond to them. Joseph comes to mind. I was trying to think of, of what might be some examples in, in our circle. Teaching Bible school might be one of them. Good job, all you Bible school teachers. Um, the jail ministry might be one of them. Just reaching out to somebody who is who is struggling could be one. Um, a scary church assignment could be one. And these these so-called opportunities they they can look like mountains sometimes. But this morning I want to encourage you that uh, in, instead of giving into your first inclination and, and uh, looking for some avoidance maneuver. Uh, do, the, do the best. Um, well, well, think about, think about uh, taking on this mountain. Occupy this mountain and, and make, it, make it something that um, can be a stronghold in your life. And, and as we think about that specific challenge... Uh, I would like to look at Joshua chapter 17, at the tail end of Joshua chapter 17. I feel a little bad sharing this sermon because I have at times been very good at um, dodging opportunities. Depending what opportunities have been knocking on my front door, I might already be 
sneaking out the back door. So looking at Joshua chapter 17 has been a challenge to me. And uh, I'm starting at verse 14 here. Now just to give you a picture of what's going on in this passage, Israel has occupied the promised land. They're dividing up the land. Half of Manasseh has already gotten its share of the lot on the east side of the Jordan. And Ephraim and the other half of Manasseh are getting their land on the west side. And they're not too happy with with how this has turned out. Starting at verse 14 and Joshua chapter 17. Then the children of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why have you given us only one lot and one share to inherit, since we are a great people, inasmuch as the Lord has blessed us until now? So Joshua answered them, If you are a great people, then go up to the forest country and clear a place for yourself there in the land of the Perizzites and the giants, since the mountains of Ephraim are too confined for you. But the children of Joseph said, The mountain country is not enough for us, and all the Canaanites who dwell in the land of the valley have chariots of iron, both those who are of Beth Sheen and its towns, and those who are of the valley of Jezreel. And Joshua spoke to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, saying, You are a great people and have great power. You shall not have only one lot. But the mountain country shall be yours. Although it is wooded, you shall cut it down, and its farthest extent shall be yours. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have iron chariots and are strong. Ephraim and Manasseh are requesting an an upsize in their lot size. Now their lot lot was on on the west side of the Jordan, and, and pretty much... From the bottom of the the Sea of Galilee going down to where the Dead Sea starts. This, probably about 80% of that stretch of land was theirs. Pretty big territory. And it was much larger than that of some of the other tribes like uh, Dan and Zebulun and Issachar, which, which were more numerous. But apparently they were looking more by cities and amount of cleared land and they weren't happy with with what was in their lot. Joshua's first response to them in verse 15, he kind of uses their language against them. He says, if you are a great people, and it makes me wonder if if maybe they regretted their choice of words, kind of like a boy who complains to his mom about being bored. So Joshua then uh, points out this expansion opportunity that's kind of right under their nose. I'm pretty good at ignoring things right under my nose. This here, um, we don't know for sure what what areas are being referred to here for certain, but the mountains of Ephraim are probably uh, talking about a region in the lower part of this lot. And when he talks about the, the forest country opportunity, he's probably referring to Mount Gilboa, which is a range of mountains uh, in the northern edge of of their territory. It kind of curves away northwest, away from the Jordan. And uh, there's plains on either side. There's a nice plain to the north. If you go past that plain, then you eventually get to Nazareth. And you can see all this on Google Earth. It's really amazing. 
not quite as good as touring the promised land, but it's kind of interesting. Well, Manasseh, uh, Joshua is, is uh, pointing out this, you know, this territory up here these, that they can occupy. But Manasseh and Ephraim kind of choose to focus on the negatives. And Joshua has already pointed out, you know, they're going to have to clear this. That's going to be labor intensive. Uh, there's, there's giants up there. That's kind of scary. And Manasseh and Ephraim point out that, you know, there's, this is, just doesn't look very rewarding to us because even if we do take those mountains, there's not enough room there. And it's not like, you know, from then on, you know, we've got clear expansion to the valleys because there are these Canaanites who live in the valleys and they have iron chariots, probably referring to scythe chariots, which have these, you know, nasty uh, blades sticking out of their wheels. So, thanks, but no thanks, Joshua. Your your ideas not there's some problems with your suggestion. So then Joshua follows up with his second challenge, and, and notice he's he's very agreeable. He says, "You are a great people. You have great power. You should have some more land. That's true. The mountain country is wooded. That's true." Uh, the Canaanites have iron chariots. That is also true. And the Canaanites are strong. But although it is hard, you can do it. Kind of reminds me of, of uh, John Zare when he was my teacher sometimes. <laughs> well, there's two things that, that um, Joshua points out here that Manasseh and Ephraim don't seem to have noticed. One thing is, is in verse 17, he, he uses the, the terminology, you have great power. Now, it would have been helpful to me if he would have used language to make it clear that, that he's including God in the picture here. But I think he is, just kind of based on who Joshua was. And if you think about it, and this is kind of sad, the argument that Joshua is having here with Manasseh and Ephraim is a whole lot similar to the argument uh, that he had with their parents when he was telling them, trying to persuade them to go into, into the promised land. Joshua here is, is including God in the picture, and that is why they had great power. And certainly that's the most important part of the equation as we look at mountains today. So that's one point. The other thing is that is in verse 18 where he says, uh, cut it down and its farthest extent shall be yours. He seems to be saying that once you've conquered the mountain country, then you'll be in a position to take the valleys. You'll, you'll, be, you'll have a strategic advantage, put it that way. High ground is an advantage in battle, especially in those days, because it provides a vision and cover and, you know, a uh, barrier, a defense. So those forest country, forest covered mountains, they look like an obstacle, they look like a negative, but there's something that can be turned into a stronghold from which you gain even more territory. All right, so parallels here are fairly obvious. Your lot has mountains. Life isn't just uh, plains of green grass and daisies. Um, 
and and there are you know there are these mountains. Some of these mountains have giants. There are valleys that have scythe chariots and strong Canaanites inhabiting them. And our tendency maybe is to avoid the nasty spots as much as possible and rush through them when we have to and stick to the small pockets that are trouble-free, also known as as comfort zones. At least that's my tendency. But it's really hard to obey the verse that we started with if you live your life like this. And worse yet, uh, we begin to resemble more and more someone that Jesus talked about um, when he talked about the person who, when told, occupy till I come, he was scared, he was lazy, and he took the safest, safest route possible to him and kind of buried his talent. We don't want to resemble that person. All right, so I think at this point we agree that, yes, uh, we have mountains in our lives. Yes, we shouldn't avoid all of them, though there are valid reasons for not tackling everything that comes our way. And I'm not going to go into how you decide whether or not. But I would encourage you, don't let labor-intensive, not looking very rewarding or, or looking scary, don't let those three reasons be the ones that make you choose not to take something on. Well, how do we go about, let, let's say there, there is a mountain and we decide that this is something I'm going to um, try to tackle. I'm going to try to occupy this mountain. How do we do that? Well, I picked up a few ideas based on some examples that I, of people that I admire in the Bible, David and, and Caleb and Nehemiah and the Good Samaritan. I came up with uh, about four, four steps that I think can, can be helpful based on these men and their examples. The first one is this. You need to make it about God. You need to try to focus as much as possible on, on doing the right thing because of God and not because of a personal benefit or, or trying to impress people. In 1 Samuel 17, where David is is uh, having this discussion about Goliath. Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? Now David may have been curious about what would be done, what kind of reward there was, but primarily I think what he's saying Uh, is a reflection of his strong feeling that something ought to be done. Something needs to be done here. Three times in this chapter 17, David emphasizes that this man has taunted the armies of the living God. And it bothered David. And that was the reason why he went into this. He, He had the right focus. When we have the right focus, it makes it a lot easier to deal with criticism or setbacks or whatever, lack of recognition. You know, David himself was was wrongly rebuked by his brother, but David doesn't fly off the handle or become discouraged. I think it's because God's reputation is is what mattered to him most. So that's, that's one thing. Make it about God. The other thing is we need to know 
our history. Know your history. I'm talking about personal history. Caleb, when he arrived in the promised land, he kind of had an odd request. Instead of asking Joshua for, you know, now we've got here, can I have a nice little beach house along the Mediterranean? He says, you know, you see that mountain over there where there's giants? Um, I want to take that mountain. There, I want to read a, a few verses from Joshua 17 here. Caleb shows his knowledge. Notice how well he knows, he, he knows his own history. Uh, Joshua 14, I'm sorry. Starting in verse 7. Caleb speaking here to Joshua. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought back word to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, but I wholly followed the Lord my God. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land where your foot has trodden shall be your inheritance and your children's forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, as he said, these forty-five years. Ever since the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel wandered in the wilderness. And now, here I am this day, eighty-five years old. Yet, I'm as strong this day as the day when Moses sent me. Just as my strength was then, so now is my strength for war, both for going out and for coming in. Now therefore give me this mountain of which the Lord spoke in that day. For you heard in that day how the Anakim were there, and that the cities were great and fortified. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall be able to drive them out, as the Lord said. Caleb knew a couple things Caleb uh, clearly uh, talks about in, in knowing his history here. One is that God had made some promises, and God kept them. And the other is that the reason he was where he was was because God got him there. It's pretty awkward English, but you get the point. God brought him to that, to that place. David followed a similar pattern when he saw Goliath and that mountain, if you want to call it. You know what he was thinking about? He was thinking about the lion and the bear that God had delivered into his hand. It's really important for us to remember that God, is, God has been keeping promises. Let's, let's not forget them. Um, Asa, king of Judah, early in his reign, a huge Ethiopian army comes up and attacks. And Asa, has, there's nothing he can do. You know, he, they're not strong enough. He cries out to God, and God delivers them into his hand. It's amazing. Many years later, Asa, little old Israel, you know, starts to threaten Judah. And Asa, instead of appealing to God, goes and makes a treaty with Syria. And God was not pleased that Asa had forgotten his history. And God sent his, the, his prophet Hanani to Asa, who said... Because you've relied on the king of Israel and have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Syria has escaped from your hand. Were the Ethiopians and the Lubim not a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. 
For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. And this you have done foolishly. Therefore, from now on, you shall have wars. Asa forgot his history. So know your history. Third point, lean on God from start to finish. Uh, the, the verses that we just read about Asa kind of brings us into this notion that, that God is looking for opportunities to show himself strong. And unfortunately, if you want to look at it that way, those are, kind of, those are the very kind of opportunities that are usually uh, the least appealing to us, at least in my case. Nehemiah is an excellent example of someone who leaned on God. And uh, we see him leaning on God for intervention when he first heard about the walls of Jerusalem, the condition they were in. It says that, When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He also leaned on God when he needed on-the-spot help and wisdom. When the king they had that little conversation and the king asked him, well, what do you want me to do? Or what can I do for you? And, and Nehemiah immediately praised God for help. And then when they got over to Jerusalem and there was the opposition, Nehemiah leaned on God for strength against the opposition. Uh, I'm reading from... Uh, Nehemiah 2, verse 14. When I saw their fear, talking about the people of Jerusalem were scared, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. And then there was a personal plot more directed against Nehemiah personally. And he said this, For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work, and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hand. So, after you've committed to, to taking on this mountain, uh, don't get so focused on the part that you have to play that, that you forget. That you need to lean on God for every part of it. How much? Don't forget how much you need God to make it turn out. final point is this one. Be thorough. And we'll look at the Good Samaritan for an excellent example of someone who was thorough. Sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll take on an opportunity and, and, um, and I'm looking for kind of the first opportunity to say I'm done and uh, get out of it. But the Good Samaritan is, is, a, is someone who was was extremely thorough, and I think Jesus included these extra details uh, to make his point completely clear. Um, but a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, talking about the thief in the ditch. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. He came to him, he bandaged up to his, his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Bandaged his wounds, poured on oil and wine, put him on a beast, took him to an inn, 
took care of him himself for some period of time, turned him over to the innkeeper, gave him money, and said, if it's going to cost more than that, I, I will pay the, the difference. Very thorough opportunity. Uh, a thorough in, in completing this opportunity and seeing it through. All right. So, in conclusion, let me tell you about the jail ministry. For me, the jail ministry was a bit of a mountain. And uh, I was, you know, it was kind of out there for a while, and, and, I, and I felt like I probably should get involved in this because I wasn't doing much, period. And uh, Dan came to me, I think, at some point and kind of encouraged me that maybe I should get involved in this. And I think Greg did, too. And uh, so I finally, after a lot of foot dragging, I finally went and filled out this paperwork and got it submitted and went to orientation and got got involved in the jail ministry. And I'm not sharing this as a, you know, look at me, I'm in the jail ministry. Uh, I'm more sharing it as it, it looked like a mountain and I kind of got drug into it. Not not really, I didn't get drug into it, but it looked like a mountain and I, I finally, you know, took a step forward and, and with some encouragement. But the funny thing is that I kind of enjoy it. It's, it's, I think it's blessed me more than anybody. And it's, I don't, it's been a real blessing in, in my life. Um, it's done a lot of good for me. And to me, it feels like, you know, this has almost become... Uh, a stepping stone, maybe. It's it's something that that maybe will give me more opportunities, or, or it's kind of become a, a strong point, and there's not a whole lot of them in my life. So as you go into this next week and beyond, there are a lot of opportunities that, that come your way, and some of them are look fun and, and not you know not unappealing others don't look so exciting and I would challenge you that even if it even if it looks like a mountain don't just this don't just look for the easy way out um, think about it is this something that, that God would like me to get involved in um, is this, is this something that God can turn into a stronghold? Is this something God can turn into a, a stepping stone from which I gain um, a, a deeper walk with God and can be used to, to win more territory for the kingdom?